You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Simon and I'm JR and it's October so that means it's new music week oh so we've lost the sort of the slow jazz kind of I liked that one Hmm. Uh, but now we've got well people will just have heard it but you two won't so you'll have to listen back to the episode to find out what it is which was sent in by our listener John Hull although I subsequently tweaked it but try as either of us might, we couldn't quite get it to work. But the version that we've ended up with um, is short anyway, so I don't think it'll uh, get on people's nerves too much, the fact that we couldn't quite tweak it to work. But I, when he sent it in, I thought, oh, that's too good not to use, really. So tweaked and tweaked and tweaked. Right. But it's fun. Okay. I think people will like it. Or people will have liked it, having just heard it. It's good to know you had fun tweaking. Uh, now you two are on tenterhooks to find out what it is, possibly. <laughs> or maybe you just don't care. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think what it could be. Your idea of fun isn't everyone's. Someone should do well, I might as well tell you, because everybody's going to just have heard it, right? <laughs> Someone on. should do a magic roundabout version of the Doctor Who thing. Using, like, sort of carnival organs and yeah, yeah. things like that. That would be good. Well, what, if I had question? any sort of talent whatsoever in that direction, I'd give it a try. This is the Doctor Who themes superimposed over an instrumental version of Iggy Pop's The Passenger. Oh, wonderful. So oh, I, know that. I think I know that song, yeah. Yeah. So it, it actually works quite well, but because of the chord sequences in The Passenger mm. and the chord changes in the Doctor Who theme, there are bits where it doesn't quite stay in key. But, I know, I mean, I've said that, and I guess probably 90% of people probably didn't even notice, right? See, because of my age, I knew the Susie and the Banshees version before I knew the Iggy version. Oh, I've forgotten all about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah, I think I knew the Iggy, yeah, but I'm the same age as you, so... Because of my age, I knew neither version. Well, in that case, you can sod off. Um, it's my house. <laughs> well, it might be your house, but we're upstairs, you can go down. It is on the... Is it on the same album as Love for Life? Is it on? Oh, I don't know. I don't know Iggy Pop that well. Huh. I was going to say. I was going to say. You asked me, "Is it on the same album as Lust for Life?" And I'm thinking, I don't remember Susie and the Banshees doing Lust for Life. <laughs> <clears throat> They're both early seventies. I reckon. I could be wrong. I'll have a look. I don't know. It's like a. Conversation in an old people's home now. <laughs> you can definitely get early, downstairs. Early 70s. <laughs> uh, back Do you remember I'm Spangles? Yeah. Do you remember Vietnam? Well, speaking of remembering things, I've got a couple of films to review. I'm going to do them now before we get into the subject. Right. And speaking of remembering things, one of them is Solar Warriors, which oh. was known as Solar Babies in America. 
and was made in 1986 and as I discovered subsequent to watching it has got a bit of a cult following amongst people who remember it from when they were kids oh wow and there were uh, you know you go on Amazon afterwards to find out what other people thought of it and so the, well you go on Amazon so you can get the details to put on the um, bottom of the review but yeah it turns out there's a few people who are like Oh, I remember this from when I was a kid. So I bought the DVD and actually, I don't know why it's got so many terrible reviews. It's a great film. No, let me tell you, there's a reason it's got such terrible reviews. It is because it's the biggest steaming pile of shit I've ever seen. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Co- copyright J.R. Sattles, Starburst magazine. I exaggerate, but it is absolutely appalling so bad the cast which is quite good it's got people like jamie um jason patrick in it and charles derning uh it's got alexi sale in it the cast the cast almost walked out and mel brooks who was executive producer flew down to the set in spain and told him in no uncertain terms any more nonsense from you lot and i'll sack the lot of you the film went as I recall, about five times over budget. And it still looks like something the Children's Film Foundation made. Golly. It actually cost, in the end, about the same as Blade Runner did. Blimey. And this is... The guy... I can't remember his name. The guy whose idea the film was, he wrote this treatment for the film, put it around loads of film companies, and they all told him in no uncertain terms where to go. And in the end... Somehow, Mel Brooks got wind of it and thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. It's about a training camp in the desert after a a nuclear war has wiped out all water on the planet's surface, which is obviously what nuclear war does, right? So there's... So this corporation called the Protectorate who control all the water supplies, because they've got it in underground water. What they do is they take children away from their parents when they're born and bring them up in training camps to work for the protectorate. None of this makes any sense when you say it out loud and it doesn't make any more sense in the film. Sounds like, like, it sounded like Tank Girl up to a point. It sounds like Quantum of Solace to me. <laughs> so basically you've got this training camp in the middle of the desert where there's all these kids learning to skateboard. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. Learning to roller skate, sorry. Oh. Roller skate, right. Wonderful. This is, yeah, you never see them learning anything else other than roller skating. Oh. <laughs> so, <clears throat> and this was uh, four years after E.T. So this alien globe turns up just randomly in a cave. And one of the kids, Lucas Haas, who was in Witness, finds this globe... And the globe can do magic, like it can make it rain indoors. So you think, oh great, the globe can make it rain, so that's your plot solved, end of the film, right? Mm. But no, apparently even though this globe could make it rain, he doesn't bother doing that again, so they don't get the water back that way. So the kids, realising that the authorities are going to want to get their hands on this globe, go on the run on their roller skates. And then the second half of the film is like a journey round all these little shanty towns straight out of uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> the plot doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and the dialogue is even worse. 
There's a bit where one of the bad guys is uh, putting his paws all over the lead, leading girl. And she says to him, get off me, you creature of filth. <laughs> Which is apparently the most famous line in the film. But the entire film is that bad. And indeed, for about the last 20 minutes, at the end of every scene, all these kids just sort of randomly start congratulating each other. And I'm thinking, well, they're taking verisimilitude a bit too far, because any time any one of the kids does anything, all the other kids circle round him and start saying, well done, well done, you did really well. Until suddenly it struck me that actually this is the point at which the cast are so determined to get through the last 20 minutes of the film that it's actually just the cast members congratulating each other <laughs> on getting through the scenes and <laughs> they've kept it in. It's terrible. And they're always thinking Starlight Express was the worst thing on roller skates. No, this is definitely the worst thing on roller skates. It has. I mean, it's got a great cast, mm. so it's entirely watchable, mm. but it just looks so cheap. The 80s fashions in it are so exaggerated, they made Duran Duran videos look like something that Godly and Cream would have made. Do you know what I mean? And Or Anton Corbin. And... Oh, I don't know. Solar, it, Solar Warriors is a better title than Solar Babies. Well, the thing is, they are <laughs> they are a roller skating <laughs> hockey team called right. the Solar Babies. Oh, okay. So that's why it's called Solar Babies. Solar Warriors is just pretty random; doesn't really relate to anything. It's more sellable, though. Yeah, it's less like Muppet Babies, more like Dream Warriors. Yeah, 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 and that's obviously why they changed it over here, but. But it it was supposed to cost five million, and by the time they built all these shanty towns, one of I mean they've got names so like Tire Town. So why has it landed in your lap? Because it's been reissued. It's just been it's just been released on Blu-ray. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no extras. It's just here's the Blu-ray of this film that you love from when you were ten. Yeah. Go out and buy it. <clears throat> No. Can I mention? Can I mention? Oh, oh, just very quickly. Yeah, go on. People have been shouting at the um, at their headphones or whatever because because now you've looked was, it up. The passenger was on the album "Last for Life." Oh, there you go. Produced by David Bowie. What year? Oh, I don't know. It's gone off my screen now. Mm. But talking about that film, the other end of the spectrum, you're saying about a film that cost. Five. Well, that was supposed to cost five million, and in the end, it cost twenty five million. Nearly bankrupt Mel Brooks because he paid for a lot of that out of his own pocket. Right. And absolutely bombed at the box office, making something like two million. But apparently, eventually, over the years and years and years on VHS and DVD, it finally broke even. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Go on. I was, was going to say about the film that I watched during the week that Which I managed to get at the other end of the spectrum from the pound shop on Blu ray. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Which is Robot, Robot Overlords. Robot Overlords. Have you managed to watch it yet? I didn't get one, they were all gone. Oh. I'll, I'll keep an eye out for you. Um, but its uh, I think it's a criminally ignored film, really. I mean, it's not the greatest film ever. But the the write-up on the front is, a, is a, a line from an Express review. But it actually pretty neatly sums up, which is Doctor Who meets Transformers. And it's got that lovely... Oh, it's a British film, so it's got that lovely British feel to it, kind of Shaun of the Dead-esque feel to it. It's by really? the same director who made Grabbers, which is... Yeah. I watched that in the week as well because that's on Netflix at the moment and that's a really great film. All right. Which is all about a load of aliens coming up from the from the sea. Well, they're not aliens, they're just these creatures. A bit like facehuggers, really. A cross between squid and a facehugger that attack people. 
But the only thing that keeps them off because they suck your blood is if you've got alcohol in your system. So, so everybody's got whole, a drink. Everyone, get, everyone <laughs> gets pissed. And I seem to remember a few years ago that I think a bit of method acting, they did actually get pissed wow. to film it. So it's, it's a film well worth watching. And it's really well made and it's it's just really nice. It's got a lovely... And Robot Overlords. But Robot, Robot Overlords... Sounds a bit like a Sarah Jane adventure. Exactly. Yeah, that is it exactly. And I even thought to myself, mm, you know, no offence to Patrick Ness, but if these guys had got a hold of the class brief, we might have had something a bit different and maybe a little bit more commercial that would have maybe had a bit more life to it. But essentially it's a <clears throat> it's kind of Dalek Invasion Earth meets Survivors meets Sarah Jane. Yeah. So you've got a group of kids who, these robots, no explanation really, have appeared on the planet and they've taken over and they've told everyone to stay in their homes until they're collected. And then you've got certain characters. And again, you're saying about a great cast. They've got Ben Kingsley, Gillian Anderson yeah. as, as the main people. Ben Kingsley will appear in anything, though. I, I know, yeah. There's <laughs> but still, he brings it, class to it. He does bring class to it. And he does, he does play the part perfectly, as does Gillian Anderson. And when you read <clears> the making of afterwards, you know, they, they both kind of, like a comfy pair of slippers, they, they just kind of put their feet in and, and Gillian Anderson sort of says about where she she Mucked it was in. nice that she was playing a school teacher right someone really modest and, and she was thinking well how would a school teacher run through the forest as opposed to somebody who's supposed to be the hero yeah 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 um, but the effects are great there's a little bit too much CGI towards the end yeah well. and, it, and it's but it has got typical Doctor Who you know tropes to it yeah, yeah. where you've got a group of kids who discover how they can get out of the house without the robots realising it and they're trying to find one of them's trying to find the father and they're trying to find the, like there's some kind of resistance and they're trying to find some way and it's just a really it's, it's not as I say it's not the best film I've ever seen but it's sadly ignored I think mm. right and the other film that I saw moving things into a completely different area is um, oh, it's known as The Untamed over here, which is a real shame, actually. It's a Spanish film. It's called La Región Salvaje. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Which means, well, it means literally the untamed region or the untamed place. And seen as the the film is basically about how <laughs> it, it analogises the vagina with a small-town mentality. And so the untamed place would be the small town or the woman's sexual organ. But So taking the word place out of the title and just calling it the untamed robs the title of any meaning. But it's a, it's literally a fairy tale. It's, uh, it's about this small town. It's about this one particular family in this small town where all the members of the sort of family that we see are all in unfulfilling relationships. And although the film is sort of ostensibly about things like sexual politics, sexual desires and things like that, what it's really about is the notion that the grass is greener on the other side. But as we know, that expression doesn't mean that the grass actually is greener on the other side. It means it just looks greener from where you're standing. And if you go by Aesop's Fable or whatever, 
you get over to the other side and you realise that actually the grass was greener where you were. Mm. And that's the theme of this film. All these people are in unfulfilling relationships. They're all looking for new relationships to have. And because of this being the way of these things, these new relationships that they strike up either end up making them even less fulfilled or killing them. <clears throat> but it being a fairy tale, these new relation <laughs> relationships that they have are with this alien being who's crash-landed in the woods outside the town and is sexually pleasuring people in a shack in the forest. So for the first hour and a half, it's like this really it's slow... Not mimic, is it? No. Oh, no, for the first hour and a half, it's this really slow-moving sort of Spanish family drama... Mm which just has this hint of mystery and you keep getting bits of the storyline about this shack and these people will go off to the shack and they'll just... And the the camera work is mostly very still and lots of scenes which is just one long shot for the scene. But every now and again there'll be a bit where somebody goes to the shack and all of a sudden you get, you'll get, instead of static camera work, you'll get really slow languorous zooms as people are walking off into the forest. But it's not until the last 20 minutes of the film where you... Uh, where you've known that there's something in the woods and you've known that it's crashed alien because the very first shot of the film is actually of this meteorite coming to Earth, right? But it's not until the last 20 minutes of the film where you think, are they going to show the alien? Are you going to see what it does? Yes, you are. And yes, you do. And it doesn't disappoint. The last 20 minutes of the film is freaky do shit. Mm, but it's great. It was a brilliant film. Yeah. I give it eight stars rather than any more because it's one of those things that it's probably for for the English speaking market. It's probably slightly too ponderous, and perhaps also slightly too analogous. But I think if I'd have been Spanish speaking, it would have been a ten out of ten. Which sounds like a contradiction, right? I should have reviewed it as a Spanish speaker, but I'm reviewing it for the English market, so I had to try and take that into account, yeah. But it was a brilliant film. Couldn't recommend it highly enough. If you're the kind of person who is not averse to engaging with very slow Spanish-speaking movies. Does a big 52's love shot come over the credits at the end? Yes, funny enough. I couldn't believe it when oh, it no. did. Oh. No. I Get away with you, Simon. <laughs> I watched the Workmeister Harmonies by Bellatar. Right. Which is we'll sim- get on with that subject. Which is oddly similar. A small town and a... a an old, German film. Uh, Hungarian. Bellatar's this... Bellatar's, Bellatar did the seven-hour slow cinema Satan Tango. So this was only two and a half hours, which was manageable. How old but is it? 2000. Oh, that's quite recent then. So lots of very slow, like you were saying, very slow shots, very slow pans following characters. It's about a small town and a circus comes into town, a sort of dark circus. Sounds like... And they have a a lorry with a stuffed whale in the lorry as the main circus attraction. (laughs) And it slowly creates, it's set in the Soviet occupied occupation, and it slowly creates um, riots in the town and frictions in the town. Sounds a bit like... Milos Forman's films from before he went to Hollywood. Yes, yeah. His films from the 60s in Fine's Hungary. Ball. Yeah, Fyans yeah. Ball's a brilliant film. Or, um, but it's another, quite another fast Hungarian, and snappy. Another Hungarian called um, Yanchko, 
which is like mm. lots of very, very unbroken camera shots, moving around planes and following people. So there's bits of that. Yeah. And Fellini. So that's what I watched. <clears throat> right, we've all so done our film reviews. Ro- Robot Overlords, we've all found a natural level. Oh, and, and, uh, Hang I, on, I might have done La Region Salvaje, but I also did Solar Warriors. Oh, this is true. Swedish film called I Am Curious Yellow from 1968. Which is a sort mm. of erotic political film. That's quite good. I watched that today. And Men from uh, Men from Uncle, I saw today. Oh, okay. Which was all right. Yeah. The film version. Yeah, the Guy Ritchie version. Oh gosh, it's quite good. Guy Ritchie when he when he he's hit and miss. I haven't seen mm. his King Arthur yet. I've heard bad sounds things. awful, doesn't it? But Man from Uncle is sort of period piece, and it's stylized, but in the right way. Um, I can't imagine charismatic acting. How, yeah. I was going to say how the nondescript heroes, because they're kind of. They just looked and I thought, oh, it looks like an aftershave commercial. They give them quite a bit of backstory. So they don't start out as buddies at the beginning. They start out as sort of mortal enemies. And they still pretty much are by the end of the film. Mm. But it's sort of, yeah, it's good. Who are the. Who the plays? Actors, Henry Cavill and. Uh, and the Lone Ranger guy, whose name yeah. I forgot. Henry Cavill's yeah. supposed to be good, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, Henry Cavill's yeah. good. Superman. Uh, yeah, mm. yeah. And well, we can forgive him that. And the other guy, I've got, I've got, yeah. Army Hammer. Hammer. Oh, yes, he's supposed to be good as he's well. He's good, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, both, they're both really good. Right, should we talk about some Doctor Who yep. then? <laughs> okay, our topic tonight is the top ten classic series. Well, I was going to say companions or recurring characters, but basically it's all companions. I put a list of about 30. I said the one criterion was that they had to be in three stories or more. Otherwise, people like Sabalom Glitz would have been in contention, which I didn't think was pro- appropriate. And nobody tried to vote for Sarah Kingdom or Katarina, so... Okay. Fair enough on that. Right, I get my thing out, so I don't let you two cheat by seeing what's at the top of the list. When, when, he, when he says thing, he means his phone to cover up. Yeah. Well, I was going to get something his... else out, because it's not usually my phone, but that was what <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. As I was say, I've always loved Glitz's sideburns. Is that a He's euphemism? No, they're sort of ribbed. They're bloppy. They? Yeah, they're blocky. Ribbed? Yes. They're like something that you might expect to see on JLS. Uh, what, on an eyebrow, yeah, it's like the or, eyebrow thing, predating the eyebrow thing. Yeah, but bands—that's the modern thing for yeah, blokes yeah, to have yeah. sculpted hair like with a CD rack on each side of his face. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what they—that's what they do. You keep pleasure. your fags in there, couldn't you? Mm. You probably did in breaks. Maybe you did. Yeah. Should we? Uh... Yes, go on. Okay, Adric. Sorry, Adric. Got no votes. Oh, for heaven's what? sake. Oh, well. I was quite surprised with that. Because I know Adric is not a beloved character. But there are some people for whom Adric was like an important... I mean, for those kids who were sort of born in the mid-70s and so got into Doctor Who around about the turn of the decade, Adric would have been... Why are you laughing that? Nothing, because I, I was about to be really rude about people who liked Adric. Oh, and I go ahead and be... No, 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 no. Without being rude to him, David Kitchen, I wonder whether he would have... 
because I noticed on Twitter that his, his support for Martha. He like. was one of the ones who... <laughs> was he one of the ones who voted? He usually uh, su- does. Support yes, for Martha. he voted. Support for Martha isn't analogous. No, it doesn't to support equate for to support for Adric. No, it really a... doesn't. But I think he was making the point on Twitter that he yeah. was on his own in this. But I've known several <clears> people who said that Adric was an important character yeah. in sort of them getting into the series. Or, slightly older kids, an important character in them understanding their sexual identity. Mm. So, uh, although I, I obviously realised that Adric was one of the more hated companions, if not the most hated companion, there is a number of people for whom he's an important character. And I'm I, surprised he didn't get any votes at all. I I quite like the idea of him at the time. I remember, like, the annuals, those early Peter Dawson annuals, mm. in the stories in there, in the drawings and that. I thought, in essence, he was a good character. On paper, in full circle, mm. it was an interesting character. He was probably best, actually, in State of Decay, I think. Is that the first one he actually recorded? Yeah. Yeah. I believe so. And He's a bit more duplicitous, though. Yeah, but I think that's when you get the sort of most pure statement of the character. Because that was what he was supposed to be like. That's, mm. that's The character brief was something like Artful Dodger in Space. Mm, yeah. I think State of Decay is the only time you really kind of see it. Mm. And it's before... Because I'm guessing that Matthew Waterhouse, he obviously wasn't having the greatest of times with Tom Baker. No. So I'm guessing that he would have started bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And even if he might have wanted to continue that way, if you're not getting on with the leading star... That's going to wear on you, right? Mm. So by the time they recorded the other stuff, maybe he was just a bit less bright-eyed. Well, especially if tone. you've idolised the leading star yeah. for your short life mm-hmm. and then discover, yeah. Um, I don't know if there's anybody else. We didn't get any votes for Victoria. Mm. Mm. I think she's going through a... She recently died, hasn't she? Yeah. So she shouldn't be getting... She should have an, an opportunity tr- in both. Yeah, but, but the trouble with Victoria is, as good an actress as she was, because if you've ever seen her in other things, she is a good actress, yeah. but she was landed with a terrible character. Mm. She was the whiny 60s companion. And the arrival of Zoe afterwards puts Victoria in stark relief. Mm. It does. It does seem like... In the 60s, in that period, in the 60s and 70s, they were sort of veering between different character types to try and get the right female companion until they finally hit on, well, either Joe or Sarah, depending on your <clears throat> depending on your opinion. So Joe and Sarah relatively... Well, we'll talk about it. Yeah, they're yeah. relatively interchangeable in their sort of function. They end yeah. up being. Yeah. And their intention was to be relatively interchangeable. but But... Prior to that, it swings from one extreme to the other. Yeah. You've either got, either got really clever mm. ones with independence like Zoe and Liz, yes. or else you've got, and Polly, mm. or else you've got ones like Susan and. Um, Vicky. Dodo. No, Vicky's okay, but she fulfills a slightly different function in that she was there to. Um, sort of ameliorate William Hartnell's disappointment at the breakup of the original team. Yeah. But yeah, Vicky, uh, Victoria and Susan are very much just the scream a lot, whimper a lot, fall over a lot, Mm. which is a really terrible character to saddle an actress with. I mean, she goes out in her last story, Victoria, 
her screams are what kills the creature in the last story. That pretty much says it all, doesn't it? Sadly. Um, Bonds who did get a few votes. K9 got six points, which is uh, means that two or three people voted for him. Um, outside the top ten, um, Tegan... I thought she had a slight chance of getting into the top ten because she was there for three years. Mm. I'm more I'm warming now more to her because of Janet Fielding, mm. because of the commentaries, because of what she's like on Twitter and afterwards. It's actually making me reflect because I think she put a lot of herself into Tegan. Yeah, I was going to say add substance, doesn't it? But actually, at the time, it was she had to put a lot of herself into wow. Tegan because because there probably yeah. wasn't an awful. Yeah. But the thing about Tegan was. She was this abrasive mouth on legs character. And she had some awful bits, like at the start of the visitation, where she's just whining about wanting to get back to Heathrow. Yeah. But actually, a lot of the time, she was a sort of welcome note mm. of having a character there who wouldn't just bitch at the doctor, but would bitch when there was reasons to bitch. Mm. So rather than being a one-note bitching character, she would actually speak up when it seemed like it was relevant. And of all the characters who were around in the 80s, she was the one that resonated the best with me. Mm. I didn't really like any of the companions in the 80s, but she was the one I disliked the least, if you know what I mean. She kind of predates Donna in a lot of ways, doesn't she? She yeah. goes through a very similar journey. Mm. of not wanting to be there and then deciding I do want to be there and then having the bravery to say this isn't fun anymore. Yeah. And when she gets left behind at the end of Time Flight and then comes back in Ark of Infinity, they do have the good sense to actually write the character slightly differently. She's mm. been away for a couple of years, she realises she misses it and now when she goes back she wants to be there. But then they do some terrible, terrible things. Like, given her story where she goes to visit her... Is it grandfather in The Awakening? Verney, yeah. Yeah, and they barely get a scene together. And when they do get a scene together, they barely say hello to each other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, She has an unfortunate run of relatives. Yeah. That are sort of forgotten. So she loses her aunt. Yeah. And then it's just, okay. Who cares about the aunt? Yeah. yeah. And then here's your grandfather. Oh, Hi. And various things like that. But, in spite of a few things like that, I thought she was one of the best realised and best developed characters in the 80s. And I thought she had a chance of getting in the top ten. I wonder if she had like a vase on a, a shelf at home and people said, who's that? And say, oh, that's my aunt. Is that her ashes? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe she had a little doll on the shelf at home. Yeah. Who's that? Little that's money. my aunt. Oh, you made a little doll of your aunt? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, immediately outside the top 10 and we have percentages so I'm given this percentage to show okay. what we're talking about between what's in the top 10 and what's outside it the highest one outside the top 10 on 9.3% is Romana as played by Mary Tan that's <gasps> mm. fair enough well, when you consider we're talking about 30 people, mm. to be just outside the top 10 more or less puts you in the top third. So that's not bad going, really. And it's high considering she was, she, one, she was season one season and it wasn't the best season. There's maybe one story, there maybe one or two stories in it. 
that are sort of generally well regarded. I, felt I was no, really comfortable with their presence, though. I, I watched think the series. It's about half and half with that one. Reboss, uh, Stones of Blood, and Androids of Tara are pretty highly regarded. But yeah, it's not it's not the best season for me. It's for me. It's Reboss, half of Stones of Blood. Yeah, for me too. And bits of Androids of Tara. And I like Androids of Tara, oh. but um, I don't think. She's the best written character. Mm. I, I think the um, she's a newly graduated time lord who is at opposition with the Doctor because she's all about um, doing things by the book and he's all about not. That's a very one-dimensional. Mm. It's probably another character where the the actress brings a lot to it. Yes, but especially. also the actress in conjunction with Tom Baker because they obviously got along. Well, they oh, she feels she like oozes not. class. Yeah. Doesn't she? Yeah. Um, her performance is so solid. And yet she's just a working class Polish broad. Yeah. 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 But yeah, yeah, she does. And um, yeah, as that season goes on, and they obviously warm the character up, both in the writing and in the performance. Mm. Yes, she really works. But I think she comes from such a one-dimensional beginning. That's perhaps why she's outside the top ten, because... You know, you needed really a second year in order to properly develop that and turn mm, it into mm, a real mm. character, didn't you? Mm. And, top... she, and she was outside the top ten because <clears throat> of the ones that are in the top ten. Well, yeah. I mean, there are ten companions beyond Mary Tan. Yeah, yeah. As we're about to discover. Yes. Um, before we do, Steve, last week I didn't get a chance to write down, to copy and paste all the comments onto my uh, doc. This week I did, and only one person made any. Oh, so I'll read out. This was Steve Her. So we will have five comments from Steve Her dotted throughout this podcast. The first one's coming now. And this is about Tegan, who he had in first place. <clears throat> and he says of Tegan, she just seems so real to me. Brilliantly played by Janet Fielding. She is a really good actress, actually. And I was heartbroken both times the TARDIS took off without her. So, fair enough. He also comments on... Uh, oh, no, he doesn't. That's ninth place. In tenth place, we'll get to Steve's comment in a moment. Right. On 13.6, so that's a bit of a leap from 11th to 10th, but on 13.6%, and you should be pleased about this, Simon, mm. is Joe Grant. Yay! Uh, is Simon pleased because... He likes Katie Manning. So she's made it into the top ten, not because she's at the bottom of the top ten. No, maybe she should be there. I mean, it's not as high as I would, but no, obviously. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> I think yes. I voted for her. I think yeah. I voted for Joe. I thought Joe... I... No, I'll tell you why I think Joe's not higher. She's a good, solid, likeable companion. She got slightly eclipsed by Elizabeth Sladen, who came in immediately afterwards. She's in an era of the programme that's mostly well-regarded, but not ex- sort of universally mm. so and because actually a lot of the top 10 as you two will discover and as I discovered putting this together a lot of the top 10 is characters who you wouldn't necessarily think of as standard companions mm. and Joe Grant's a fairly standard companion yeah, yeah. so all the votes for the standard companion yeah. went to I mean we might as well say it, it's so obvious Sarah Jane Smith right so Joe Grant is everybody's second favourite Sarah Jane Smith. I was going to say, if it wasn't for Sarah Jane, then Joe would be the stereotypical female yeah. companion. Yeah. Wouldn't she the archetype? <clears throat> she laid the groundwork for what 
Sarah Jane Smith would become. Mm. And you, I wonder if, so the archetype companion just happens to both times start with John Pertwee. Maybe there's mm. something about John Pertwee that creates an archetype character. So he's that kind of dominant male character. And well, he has prior. assistants <clears throat> rather than companions. Yeah. But prior, I was going to say, prior to John Pertwee, the TARDIS crew was always at least three people strong, yeah. Yeah. if not four on occasions. And it was a team. Yes. Whereas once he's um, stranded on Earth, he doesn't need a team anymore because you've got the unit family there. Yeah. So they give him an assistant so that there is at least one character and this being because it's military in the 1970s, this being the only female character. So at least one character is there as a woman and who is also there specifically to be the Doctor's right-hand man, as it were. Yeah. Whereas Sarah Jane, so where Sarah Jane wins over Joe Grant is because she gets both the roles because then she moves on to Tom Baker and they become more of a companion piece. So I think she breaks free of that sort of John Pertwee and you know what I think? Shackle. You know what I think breaks her free is that she gets to go out into space. Yeah. Whereas obviously Joe Grant gets one story a year in space, but Joe Grant is, in the minds of most people, grounded absolutely to the home counties. Yeah. Sarah Jane Smith gets to do the home counties and space, mm. and so, in spite of the differences between the actresses. Mm. Elizabeth Sladen gets to be in the Holmes and Hinchcliffe era. She gets to be in space. Well, she gets to be in the Holmes and Hinchcliffe era and the Let's era. Gets to be in space and gets to be on the home counties. Gets to be the Doctor's solo companion and gets to be in one of the great TARDIS teams with Harry Sullivan. So everything Joe Grant does, Sarah Jane Smith does as well and something else on top of that. So... Yeah, Joe Grant is probably actually, well, no, it's disingenuous to say she's lucky to be there, but you can see why she's been sort of shoved to one side a bit. Mm-hmm. It's probably been brilliant because you go back to any of those stories, and although Katie Manning's performance is definitely children's TV, mm. you know, she does a lot of the head noddy stuff and all this kind of stuff, and her enunciation is. Very much what you'd expect to see maybe on CBBS these days or whatever, CBBC. But she absolutely gives it 100% conviction in every single scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I've said it before. When you actually talk to Katie Manning and you say something that she likes, she literally nods at you. Mm. Yes, that's what she's like. That's why she was such a great cast. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. What I like about it is that, you know, on on the surface, you could argue that she's quite a flimsy character. You know, she's like, what should I do next, Doctor? <clears throat> okay, I'll go do that. I'll go make some coffee. But there is an undercurrent there of well, she's not. understanding. And this is why she's such a great archetypal companion and why Sarah Jane Smith's exactly the same. Because both of them are quite capable of having ditzy moments and getting themselves into trouble. But those ditzy moments that get them into trouble always come out of having agency as a character and having the um, wherewithal to go off and investigate things for yourself. Mm. So Joe Grant, right from her first story, Joe Grant goes off and does the whole, I'm looking for this factory where yeah, these she's nesting right are. right in there, right from the start. You like say, yeah, she's... Pivotal. But she doesn't, she doesn't have the experience in that instant mm. to um, come up with the goods. 
But from that beginning, she goes on to learn and get the experience mm, mm. and become this valuable character that's exactly the same character as Sarah Jane Smith investigating Think Tank in Robot mm, or Sarah mm. Jane Smith investigating the politicians in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Which is also where that Death of the Doctor episode in um, Sarah Jane is quite nice. It puts the two, two together, yeah, yeah. 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 Do you remember who came in ninth? Yes. <clears throat> Steve Herr says... Oh, this is giving it away. Steve Herr says, Louise nailed the noble savage role and was instantly likeable. And on 14.3%, just a little bit up from Joe Grant, it's Leela. Yeah. Um, I think this is a slightly odd one in that I think, in some ways, it's a terrible character. But... Uh, in her first three or four stories, she was so well written mm. and properly three dimensionally, you know, written that you completely believe in her as a character, in spite of the sort of um, backstory that she's given, which is entirely high concept backstory, right? Yeah, she was. She wasn't in my top ten, but I think. The, or your top five. Or my top five. But the performance, I think, is what I mean. It's rich. Louise I think Jameson's really, yeah, good actress. Well, I think Louise Jameson's performance is the best performance of a Doctor Who companion ever. Um, I don't think she's the best companion ever for three or four stories. I think she was so well written. Yeah, she had a claim on being one of the best characters mm. in the series. But in terms of being a companion potentially with that character travelling with the Doctor, you could have really alienated the audience. Mm, yeah. Because, and I've said this about the new series companions, the companion in Doctor Who really needs to ask the questions that the audience at home want answering. Because if the audience at home are thinking, I don't understand something, somebody on the television screen has to explain that to them. Or has to put something in front of their audience that means they can work it out. Mm. And the thing about Leela and the Fourth Doctor is those two characters are never going to do that. Yeah. So uh, you get... She gets Face of Evil, which is a really high concept introductory story and doesn't really quite work, although I really like it. Mm. But after that, she gets three stories in the trot, which are absolutely just taking tried and tested story ideas, themes, topics, tropes, and putting them in front of an audience with a sci-fi twist. So things don't need explaining, and they get away with it. So that's Robots of Death. Talons of Wang Chan, Horror of Fang Rock. Horror of Fang Rock, okay. Two of which are just Agatha Christie with monsters, right? Yeah, yeah. And the other one is uh, Conan Doyle meets... um, Sax Roma. With monsters. Yeah. So... But I think, but then when you get into things like The Invisible Enemy, The Sunmakers, Invasion of Time, it all goes a bit tits up. And that character... And Which, in fact, is, so, so does the series. That's, that's what the, I mean. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a part of why the series goes tits up at that yeah. point. Because mm. the writers aren't on board with what they're doing with the character. Mm. And because the stories they're trying to write are no longer just Agatha Christie or Sax Roma or mm. whatever with monsters. They're actually trying to write proper sci-fi now. Yeah. But with Leela and the Doctor, and then K9, you've got no character to address that sci-fi for the audience at home, and it all just starts going a bit... Mm. For for once, so Joe Grant worked for me, and Tegan worked for me, because she was obviously getting on with 
the actor who yeah. played the doctor. Well, yeah. For once, I think <clears throat> Lena actually is stronger because she when she Louis Jameson didn't get on with Tom Baker, so they're actually competing with one another. And because of the character of Lena, is this kind that of works. aggressive yeah, yeah. that actually brings that out a little bit? She has to assert herself, and she's playing say, a certain character. I get the impression from Louise Jameson that she's quite a focused actress. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Respect. So it was all about the part. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And then when you get to middle of season 15, it's all gone. Mm. And so, I, I mean, I know there are people who absolutely adore things like the Sunmakers, but mm. I think by the time you get to Sunmakers, I just can't make sense of what's going on in the programme, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I say, I think Louise Jameson's probably the best actor ever to have played a companion, and certainly that's the best performance, I think, of any of the companions. You know, there are there are other ones I prefer, but I couldn't say that any of those other ones were actually better performances. Mm. And, and then going on to a big finish work as well, when you hear uh, performances now, they are absolute mustard. Mm. Oh, yeah. It's only Dimensions in Time that she doesn't come out of, well... The Pocahontas. Then, nobody comes out of Dimensions <laughs> in Time well. Oh, no, yeah. No. Yeah, it's like she's come off a pub crawl. Yeah. <clears throat> right, John Snow came next. Okay. Uh, this is seventh equal, two characters on 16.4%, so slightly up from Leela. Um, they are Barbara mm-hmm. and Romana as played by Lala Ward. Okay. <coughs> so, we'll talk about Romana as played by Lala Ward first. Mm. Yes. Why does she get more votes than the first Romana? Because she resembles your missus. I think I'm not the person who is voting. Well, I did vote in this, yeah. but I was only where, one of where, many. How, how high did you vote her? Oh, not that high, actually. Oh, okay. okay. About fourth or fifth? Okay, still in the top five. Oh, yeah, I mean, she, she was in. Well, it was only eight or really, five, Matt. I really. think she's a really. Well, I don't think she's a really good actress. I think she's a really good personality. Mm. And I think she's playing herself. Um, again, it's all about the relationship, the relationship yeah. between her. Mm. And the actor, and you could see, you could see the series relaxing at that point. The stories weren't great, but they were starting to relax into it. Well, I mean, it follows through from Mary Tam's performance of where mm. she was playing almost an equal to the Doctor. Yeah, and that <laughs> happens again with Lala, except it's a relaxed yes equal yeah. where they both relaxed into that whole. I think she does something really intelligent, Lala Ward, and there's kind of an example of this in City of Death. Where, well, she does something really intelligent that's also really stupid. She says to the production team, No, I'm not wearing this silver jumpsuit. I want to wear a school uniform because I want all the girls who are watching in the audience to look at me and not say, Oh, there's some exotic space alien, but look at me and say, Oh, there's somebody that I could be. Mm. And actually, what she got instead was all the boys in the audience <laughs> <laughs> looking at her and saying, There's somebody I'd like to have. But the point was, she was actually thinking, not just about the character, mm. but about the perception of the character. Mm. And when you're a regular in a TV program, where if it's a straightforward drama where you're telling a story, say it's a Shakespeare, you have to play the character that's on the page because you have to play that character in a way that relates to all the other characters in that play or in that TV program or whatever. But when you're the lead in something like Doctor Who and you're one of the two people 
who tie all the stories together and then you perform a different function. Mm. You're not there as a dramatic character. You're there as an anchor for the audience. And I think, going by that quote from about City of Death, I think this is what Lala Mm. really understood, that she and Tom were the anchors for the audience rather than characters in a drama drama because mm. they're they're just there to find out what's going on and solve it they're not there to um <clears throat> you know uh, what's the word i'm looking for where you make a difference throughout um agency yeah they're not um no that's not the word but they're not there to to develop they're yes they're not to there just... to develop the drama they're there to solve it yes yeah so that's what she understood that her and tom would come in and for three episodes, they would be observers of what was going on. And then in the fourth episode... There's also a slight feeling. So at that point, Tom Baker had gone off. He'd gone nuts. Mm. And there was a risk that he would basically fracture fracture the, the coherence of the, the series. Yeah. Because you need... The Doctor needs to be slightly eccentric, but he also needs to be slightly grounded, grounded just yeah, to give yeah. something <clears throat> to latch onto. And with Mary Tam and Tom Baker, you always got the sense that the Mary Tam was sort of running around after him, trying to keep up. And there was still not that latch. Whereas with Lala Ward, she was often given the role of the Doctor. So Yeah, uh, so he could just go off. So Horns of the Nymon, Horns mm-hmm. of Nymon, Mary Tam, uh, Lala Ward is the Doctor through most of it, whilst Tom Baker is just doing nuts things somewhere else and doing the comedy thing. But having that her kind there, of worked. That, yeah. that sort of... That worked. Having her there meant that if he did do that, Mm. it didn't matter as much as it might have if you had a character there who wasn't going to take up the slack. Yeah. So if there was if there was no Lala Ward there, if it had been that could have completely toppled. If it had been Joe Grant and the Doctor at that point, then the series would have collapsed. I think because there would have just been they'd been too far apart. Yeah, yeah. Or even or even Sarah Jane. I don't think it would have worked. I mean, it wouldn't have been like that if Sarah Jane had been there because oh, no. Tom Baker reacts to the person that's cast as a companion. And obviously then you get wonderful things like City of Death. And, you know, it's not the only example of it. I think Destiny of the Daleks actually is relatively good for this. Where actually, because their relationship is blossoming, but actually you get a hint of the reality of sort of life on the TARDIS, as it were. Because mm-hmm. with all the other actors and companions, you've got to just imagine that these people live together. Whereas with Tom and Lala, you actually really get a genuine sense that these people live together. Yeah. And that's completely flipped in season 18, when they don't talk to one another. And you can mm. see it on the screen, that they're, they're basically estranged. Mm-hmm. And that gives... That's still interesting. It still creates drama. Well, it comes and goes in eighteen, two, two doesn't poles. it? Yeah, but it's kind of it's kind of still an interesting dynamic, I think. Unless it's less comfortable. Barbara, then, <clears throat> also on sixteen point four percent. Well, I'm going to have to either give something away or not here. But how come she didn't get the same number of points as Ian? Because Miles Northcott brought this up. He wanted to vote for both of them as one choice. And I told mm. him he wasn't allowed. And I told him he had to make a choice. But Barbara and Ian, they're both in this top ten. So it's no surprise to know that he's up above her. 
But he's up above her far enough that there was obviously more love for Ian than there was for Barbara. I voted for Barbara rather than Ian because I thought at that time in the 1960s, a strong female character, which Barbara was, a strong, intelligent female character, was more impressive than a strong male character. So Ian was so obviously there as the male action intelligent awesome. lead. <clears throat> and he performed it brilliantly. And they are similar characters. But Barbara is more impressive than Ian because Barbara's a woman at the time. Do you know what, though? I think, yes, she's more impressive. But I think perhaps... Unless that's what you respond to, that makes us slightly less likable. And I think if people are voting for their favourites in a category, they're voting for the things they like more than the things that they're impressed with. Yeah. So I think maybe that's why Barbara's further down than Ian, is because people were voting for the character that they responded to. And I suppose you can kind of work out how she reacts. She's, she's incredibly rational. Mm. and thought out and it's funny because she's the history teacher and he's the science teacher mm. and yet he's the one who does the silly dancing in the TARDIS when mm. the Beatles are playing and this kind of stuff which you wouldn't necessarily expect but actually I've had physics teachers like that who in the classroom they know all their physics but outside the classroom they're a bit eccentric well also this is and this is another 1960s thing she stops being a teacher when she gets into the TARDIS and becomes a surrogate mother <laughs> Whereas Ian doesn't become a surrogate father. He's still that kind of well, uncle teacher. He's more avuncular than paternal. Whereas Barbara is definitely, definitely kind of looks after Susan. He, but she I doesn't think. stop being a teacher. No, we don't have no, Marco but Polo, there's, but there's, there's more, the Aztecs as well. There's more of a feeling of, of her being responsible for Susan than Ian being responsible for Susan. Oh, absolutely. So Ian does get a chance to... Let go off on his own, let loose, be a bit silly. Whereas she's sort of being the responsible one. And I, again, I think that makes her slightly less likable. Yeah, yeah. Even if she's more impressive. Yeah. And it comes down to the Aztecs, I think. <clears throat> because in that, she absolutely puts her foot down over the issue of whether she should be allowed to try and change things. And although that makes her somebody you could admire... Again, the way in which it happens, the way in which she puts her foot down against this character who we've all now grown to love over 50-odd years, the Doctor, kind of makes her slightly less likeable, perhaps. Mm. I mean, I'm only talking by small degrees. Yeah. Because I love Barbara, and I kind of wanted to vote for Ian and Barbara myself. And, I, and you know, Miles would be really pissed off to hear this, but I nearly did put them down as one choice. Right. <clears throat> because they are, you know, so much regarded as a pair. Yeah. But in the end, I thought that wasn't fair on anybody else who'd been in teams. No, because then you'd have to put the unit guys down as potentially as one team. And Jamie and Zoe would be a team, and yeah. Jamie and Victoria mm. would be a team, and so yeah. on. Polly <clears throat> and Ben. So, mm. so, yeah, Barbara ended up slightly further down, but, you know, still well inside the top ten. Mm. I was just slightly surprised that she didn't end up top five. But again, there's a few characters in here or there. <clears throat> less because of them being regular companions and more because of them being something a bit different. And she's very distant now. I mean, even, I mean, mm, that's true. it's that legacy legacy vote, but people are still voting on their own, the ones pers that, their yeah, own personal yeah. childhoods. Yeah, and yeah. People who, who had Barbara in their own personal childhoods are slowly dying off. 
Well, they'll be pleased to hear you say yeah. that. Well, it's, yeah. statistically, it's true. <laughs> they fade away. It's only 55 years ago. Yeah, so there'll be people who remember her would be 65 now. What? Well, because you were... Well, if you were five when you were watching Doctor Who when it started, you'd be 59 now. Yeah, yeah. So not to get too dark about it, but <laughs> statistically, you're more likely to be dead if you're 59 than if you're 49 or 40. Okay, fair enough. Happy I think we'll move on from that. Uh, sixth place. Oh, it is Ian on sixth place, actually. He's a position above, but it's, okay, a, leap, so that's, that's but it's a leap up to 19.3%. Yeah. So it's still a few points But it's still quite, quite interesting that they're, you know, pretty close together. Well, when I started counting up the um, votes, before you go in, you get an idea of who's going to do well and who's mm. not. And I had a, I I wondered before if Ian and Barbara might not be close to winning it, because mm. it's one of the things that you so often hear is when people talk with genuine love about characters in Doctor Who and Barbara and Ian, uh, one of the, she's one of those characters that people talk with genuine love about, but actually that's probably just a small fraction. So I I voted Barbara in my top five, but I remember thinking, should I vote for Barbara or Ian in my top five? Mm. So actually it split the vote for me. Yeah. And I went with Barbara rather than Ian. Mm. Yeah, it may have split the vote and that might be why they're lower. But then, like you say, they are a very long time ago. Yeah. And there are people for whom Black and White Doctor Who is difficult and that's fair enough. Um, And, And William Russell is now pretty much the, the very elder statesman of Doctor Who. Yeah. So he has got that kind of that kind of prestige now. And he's still doing things. He's still signing autographs and he's still in big finish. So he's kind of, you know... I think, actually, he's more or less stopped big finish now. Yeah. It wasn't until recently, <clears> but <throat> I think he retired. I saw him at Hooverville two or three weeks ago. Right. And, yeah, I, I think he's retired. Okay. <laughs> I think his last one was two or three years ago. Yeah, yeah. he's struggling. He's still doing really well, but yeah, no. yeah, um, he is. He's about one hundred and seventy, something like that. Now, yeah, I must be. He's in nineties, isn't he? <clears throat> um, but I mean, not to repeat ourselves, so we won't talk about Ian too much because we talked about him a lot with Barbara. Mm. I think he just comes over as the more likable one of the pair. Yeah, absolutely. You know, by a degree, yeah, but yeah. and I think that's props why he's got. Slightly more votes. And that's the thing. And he got a standing ovation, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, both he and um, Caroline Ford at the thing. I mean, that was an amazing moment. I mean, not a, that whole weekend. Yeah. That was, to be in the room with them was, I didn't expect to be as moved as I was. Did you meet him? No, I didn't. I didn't. Okay. I, there was too much queuing. Oh, okay. <laughs> too much queuing. Yeah. But to be in the same room, but actually when he finished, his, he came and sat down, um, literally yes. in front of me, and it was like, yeah, that's, that's enough of me. It was enough to just see him and did be you, in the same room. Did you stroke the back of his head? Yeah, no, I was tempted. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I stroked Julian Glover when I met him in Did London. you? Bless you. I didn't. <laughs> I stroked his ego, but and we shan't talk Glover. about that. <laughs> in. And on Glover. Top five. And this is again a slight leap. In fifth place, the Brigadier. Okay. That's obvious when you think about it. Yeah. And he could have been higher. But by the same token, 
I think what maybe split people over whether to vote for him or not is the fact that actually he's not a companion. Yeah. In the he's such a weird character. Yeah. In I mean, terms of his his relationship with the series, mm. he's a recurring. He's a recurring character, and he's a who, regular at some point. Yeah, yeah, very strange. Yeah, and so there's this relationship between him and the Doctor that, if it weren't for some of the other characters who've come above him, could in in another circumstance or in another program, a character like that could easily have won this kind of a vote outright by some distance. Yeah, but it's. It's this weird thing with the Brigadier in that there are some people who think he started well when it was played straighter and less of a foil for the Doctor and who think the character went off the boil. And then, of course, there are some people who think that as the character goes off the boil, he actually warms up Mm. and um, becomes this... Because, I mean, the thing about Nicholas Courtney is he absolutely has this twinkle in his eye all the way through. He's... He's a great actor, again, with total conviction. But within that conviction is this real humanity that really comes out. And I I think it's just one of those genius bits of casting, really. Nicholas Courtney is the brigadier. Well, I think what makes, it for, what makes him for me is, isn't that he goes off the boil, it's that he shows those two sides. So yeah, he shows yeah. he can. He, he can, can be in the military, that. He can man. be in Inferno and he can be in the demons and he can be in the time. Time monster, and you know, but the time monster is a story that's made by those regulars having a good time, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he's also again, again, got the weight of his post Doctor Who career giving him support. So, the fact that he's he was a heavy convention goer, so everyone's met Nicholas Courtney probably multiple times, and if you haven't, I don't. Did you not? No. I think I might have met him about five times. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just <laughs> I was kept very, on. I've been very late with my right convention life. Well, I'm, I've I've been to virtually no conventions, but I I went to one in Swindon and the Longleat ones, and he just you know always, always popped up. Yeah, yeah, true. But that's with true. The same well, stories. That's true for a lot of them, for a fair few of them though. Right. So it's not just that, but it's him as a person. Yeah. He's the kind of, because a lot of the, and this is not, this sounds like I'm sort of belittling them slightly, but with a lot of them, you meet them and, you know, they act, it's a living, Hmm. they happen to be in this program. They're obviously tremendously grateful, they're very friendly, they're very nice, they get on with everybody, they're absolutely lovely, but you meet them, and I'm not going to name names, you meet them and all of them, they're just people, Mm. normal people. Yeah, yeah. But you meet somebody like Nicholas Courtney, and I've got to say I'm with Simon, so I'm only going by hearsay and by, you know. But you meet somebody like Nicholas Courtney, and I can imagine that when you meet Nicholas Courtney, you kind of say afterwards, oh, I just met somebody. Yes. Mm. Somebody who's not just your average guy in the street, but somebody who's got that little bit extra, whatever you want to call it, that star quality, that charisma, that something. Mm. Mm. And I don't know, Nicholas Courtney just strikes... In any other program, he could easily have been the lead. Yeah, I just always imagine he smells. Of, he smelled of really amazing aftershave or alcohol and cigarettes. Possibly, yeah, possibly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> What's interesting about the Brigadier is just thinking about it. I don't think there's ever a point. You get characters like George Cowley in The Professionals, where I don't think they ever gave way. I don't think you ever... I always imagine there's an episode where somewhere they become vulnerable or somebody drags something up about their past mm. so you find out oh, there's more to this person. Mm. And I don't think there's ever a moment with the Brigadier where he becomes vulnerable. Well, I mean, with um, Mordrelon does, he has a nervous breakdown. Yes, but that's kind of a superimposition on the character rather than something that comes out of the character. Yeah. If you know what I mean. And besides, I don't, I don't like Mordred Undead anyway, but I don't think that, I'm not convinced by any of that, frankly. Um, but that's, <laughs> I mean, yeah, he softens. Yeah. And that's kind of that era, isn't there? But the closest thing to anything you're talking about is the women in his life. Yes. Yeah, they must be human. But also, I mean, again, Inferno, you see, you see, I know it's a parallel dimension, but you see a kind of a flip side. You see the dark side of his character. Mm. Yeah. And, and Web of Fear as well, because he's part of that conspiracy. He could be good. He could be bad. Mm. You're never quite sure. That's not being vulnerable though, is it? That's. Uh, Maybe not. It's his character being vulnerable. They've sort of. He's not. He's not a fully formed character. At that what point. Simon means is, during the regular run of Brigadier episodes, there's never one where the Brigadier's put at the centre of things in the same way as, say, Mike Yates is. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Whereas the Brigadier is a more obvious character to test in that way, and at the end of that story, the Brigadier would have come out not turning yeah, traitor. You, you could basically turn him and say, right, go in that direction. You knew exactly how he's going to behave in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you say the aliens are over there, so you know he's going to go over there and probably get out a gun and start firing at it. I guess that is his personality. That is his character, isn't it? Yeah, his character is this kind of blinkered, but completely straight military man. But Mm. what saves him? Slightly stupid at times. Yeah, but what saves him is that twinkle. Mm. Mm. That's the that seems like um, something that's sort of an irrelevancy. But actually, when it comes to being under threat. The twinkle becomes like a shield, which stops you from being too brittle and too mm. open to injury. Well, also, you know, emotionally. I mean, I mean, that whole relationship is like you know the doc, the, the brigadier says, "Right, I'm going to go over there and blow up those aliens," and the doctor says, "Well, I'm going to try and make sure that you don't have to." And the, and the brigadier says, "Well, I wouldn't expect any less from you, doctor. I'm off to set up the explosives." Mm. And that's how. In fact, Silurians gives you a really good example with um, <clears throat> what's he called, Peter Miles' character. Somebody who snaps under the pressure. Yeah. Mm. And that sense of humour is what stops the Brigadier from snapping under pressure. Because when it comes to um, the crunch, he'll say something ridiculous. like, And the character knows how ridiculous it is to say, chat with wings there, five rounds rapid. Yeah. The Brigadier has an absolute sense of the ridiculousness. it's, It's British understatement. So mm. he is a he is a parody character, but yeah, it's a it's a kind of a British understatement in the face of Doctor Who, which is you've got a character who's who's basically this straight laced military man suddenly faced with this ridiculous this ridiculous other character that comes in and starts doing ridiculous things. So it's him and John Pertwee together. That's what works. But and um, Courtney's. Characterization is what humanizes yeah. him. Yeah, <clears throat> and actually, that carries through to Death in Heaven. 
that same steadfastness. That's that's why for some of us, Cyberbrig works mm. <laughs> because no full well that he would just take advantage of the situation. Here's one for David. Like hell, yeah. I'm, look, look at me. I'm oh, like, the Cyberbrig. That was a really good moment for. I mean, it's not Nicholas Courtney. But I'm imagining that Nicholas Courtney, if he was still alive, he'd be happy to put that Cyberman costume on and be in there, yeah. maybe with the faceplate off, just so you could see Nicholas Courtney's face, because it's such a great moment for the Brigadier. I yeah. love that. That's possibly one of the greatest moments <laughs> in the 21st century Are you Doctor Who. the fire? But I actually, I agree with you. Australia's still asleep at the moment, I can imagine. <laughs> in fourth place... On 28.6%, which again is a bit of a leap, Harry Sullivan. And I think Harry Sullivan is the perfect example of one of those sort of uh, slightly slightly different characters Mm. who've garnered a lot of points because they stand out. Yeah. Do you think he Cards on the table. Go on then. Cards on the table, Harry Sullivan's my first choice. Mm. But cards on the table... Even though he was my first choice, no way on earth I could say he was the best companion. There's no way on earth I could say this he was the, the best thing. actor to play. Are companion. people are people voting for the idea of Harry Sullivan, or are they? Do you think he actually plays out to that? No, I think they're voting for his performance. Okay, I think they're voting for Ian Martyr because Ian Martyr, in the same way as um, Nick Courtney with the Brigadier does, I think mm. Ian Martyr gives Harry such humanity such charm and such charisma that because the characters are doofus mm. you know the the characterization is paper thin but it's he's a doofus at exactly the right time for a doofus to work because well, because not. with sarah jane smith and tom baker well against two strong it just, ones yeah it just it just works to kind of soften that you better want I'm not entirely sure. Well, when you say it's the right time for a doofus to work, it's a doofus the, like Harry Sullivan. It's it's a time where a third character could only work as a doofus. Mm. But as we saw for four years beforehand and for three years afterwards, he didn't need to be there. That, mm. They could have done season twelve without Harry Sullivan, and people would still revere it. And no, of course, nobody would know any better because they'd never have known the character of Harry, Harry Sullivan. But I think the character of Harry, in Ian Martyr's hands, mm. levitates season 12 so that it's a bit special. I think he's a doofus, but also there are moments where, I think in Genesis of the Daleks and Terror of the Zygons, where when it's dealing with something quite real, like the injury in the trenches, or, or in Terror of the Zygons it's very sort of grounded, He's he really in Terror of the Zygons because he's replaced by a Zygon for quite a lot of it. But he still gets, in those first episodes, he still gets a role because he's back being a doctor. Yeah, he's a little sent bit, out yeah. as, a, as a medical man and he's back under unit control. I think he's, he's sort of, <clears> that kind of res- rescues him a bit. And he does, in Robot, he does the James Bond bit for a yeah, but that episode. in a doofus way. I mean, unsuc- <clears throat> unsuccessfully. But that's it's what a, I mean. Yeah. There's, the characterisation is paper thin and it's only what Ian Martyr brings to it. Yeah. And Ian Martyr, actually, for all that I said, he's not the best actor to have ever been in Doctor Who. He is a bloody good actor. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's but, a point that he, can't op- he couldn't operate as a primary ca- companion, though, surely. No. But 
Well, I, not at that in that era of the program. I appreciate his incredible amount of affection for he, the reasons you've given, but he makes me think a bit like Rory. I think he's he's kind yeah, of similar to Rory. I was just he make feels the same point. he feels like he's been brought on mm. as just an extra in case in case the doctor doesn't work like you're expecting. He's, With Rory, I think it's planned. But with Harry Sullivan, he's brought, on, he's brought on in case they cast an older mm. actor. Mm. They realised they didn't need him, but actually they managed to make him work anyway because of who he was, who Ian Martyr was. Yeah, and actually story-wise it works. And because of, well, again, the way Tom Baker <clears throat> got on with Ian Martyr, you can mm. see that, that they, well, they develop extra <clears throat> bits to do together. He leavens what's going on elsewhere yeah. in the same way as Rory does. <clears throat> Amy has quite an intense story with the 11th Doctor. He's this character who's turned up when she's 11 or whatever it is, or is it 9? 9 or 11? And has disappeared again as if it was a dream. And psychologically, she's got all these issues that she has to work through. And Rory turning up leavens it. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, Sarah Jane Smith and the third doctor he's the sort of patrician doctor and she's the character with a lot of self-will so when Pertwee becomes Tom Baker because Tom Baker is even more strong-willed than John Pertwee in a completely different way that first year of the new character could have been like um one of the Romana seasons, mm. which for all that they work are less popular yeah. because they are slightly more alienating for uh, an audience who aren't Doctor Who fans but are just watching Doctor Who because they enjoy it. And Harry Sullivan, for that year, by way of introduction to these characters, just gives it that softer edge, just leavens it a bit, yeah. makes it more palatable. Mm. And he wasn't in it for long enough to go... For anyone portal. to get tired, yeah. And also, the actor unfortunately died early, so. So it's kind of become legendary. Been, yeah, we haven't got the stories from him, we haven't got the anecdotes, so it's still kind of mythologized the character slightly. But yeah, he was my number one, just because I have a, an absolute love for the way Ian Martyr plays that character. Mm. Top three. <clears throat> Third place which is just slightly above Harry Sullivan on 29.3%. Somebody who wasn't even a companion, but the actor did so well, got on so well with Patrick Troughton, he got taken on, and in the end, he ended up being in all but one of Patrick Troughton's stories, and that's Jamie. Yeah. And he gets way more votes than Victoria or than Zoe, because... Although, actually, I think a lot of the stuff, a lot of the reasons why people voted for Jamie are the season six stories, which are the stories that people grew up with, which, in spite of the fact that, you know, the Crotons and the Dominators might not be great, the TARDIS team in those stories is great. Hmm. And with the TARDIS team having changed across the Patrick Trout and era, the one constant is Jamie. Yeah. So I think it's partly because Jamie's the constant across this period where the TARDIS teams were always so charismatic mm. and had such great relationship. And I think the other thing is, immediately after his first story, they basically said, 
right, we couldn't continue with you as this character. Yeah. Instead, we'll put you in the kill. You'll keep some semblance of the Scottish accent. And every now and again, you'll make a joke about what's this wristwatch that you're talking about. Yeah, he's... But essentially, he just represents he the stops, Beatles, he the 60s. Much, after the Highlanders, he's pretty much stops being Jamie McCrimmon and starts being Fraser Hines. Exactly. With Patrick Troughton. <clears throat> and that's that's how season six for me is. It's yeah. just Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hines. As Patrick Troughton and Fraser yeah, Hines. Yeah, yeah. Messing about. Yeah. Well, it's and not it even works. messing about in space. It's messing about in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. And it works. I it mean, does. You know, I he, I voted for him. He was in my top five, I think. And yeah, actually, the stories that they're in, there are very few of them that actually stand up as really good stories. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them stand up as really well-remembered stories yeah. or really evocative stories, but as really good stories, not so much. The story's not great, but Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hines are always... I mean, I can't think of a, a poor Fraser Hines moment no, I think you watch... I love The Dominators. It's yeah. a terrible story, but I love The Dominators yeah. because it's got Fraser Hines, Wendy Padbury and Patrick Drown in it, yeah. and I could just sit and watch those for hours and hours and hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, Jamie, he, he comes in third. Okay. Well, who's going to be second then? Because we all know who's first, right? Well, I'm, I'm missing... I'm, I want a name to appear at some point. Well, I'm kind of missing it. Steve Hur says, although I liked Mel... Oh, there we go. Yeah, this is... Sophie was a great replacement, yeah. and it was a shame they did not travel together for a while in the TV series. Um, that would be Mel and Ace. So, in second place, on 30.7%, again, not a lot in it. Second, third, and fourth were all very close together. Ace. I was hoping she'd be higher. <clears throat> higher than second. Um, no... Uh, I think second is probably higher. Oh, higher would, in the percentage. Yeah, higher. Second is probably higher than I would have placed her. But I'm glad that I can see why she got lots of votes. She's distinctive. Mm. She's she's recent-ish. She had good stories, and um, she and she, uh, she had that feeling of being the person brought into Doctor Who who could have saved Doctor Who. Yeah. It was on that trajectory just as it got cancelled. Well, the the I think the thing about Ace is, and you know, you look back through that list, and there are what have we got? One, two, three, four, five from the seventies, and well, no, six from the seventies, and mm. three from the sixties, and one from the eighties. Yeah, because Ace really, if you're going to vote for a companion from the eighties. Ace is really the only choice. Mm. Maybe Tegan, but really just Ace. Because she's the only one who stands out as a character... A character who might not have been as well drawn, but who had the hopes and the optimism and um, the purpose. Whereas all the other companions in the 80s are like, Okay, let's think of the quirk. Oh, this one's an American botanist. Yeah, I think that right. I, what's that? An I, American botanist. I think the companions, the story of the companions in the eighties, is the story of desperately trying to do something different but failing. Each so time. they try, they try to give Tegan, or they try to give Nissa a, a, a personality by making her an orphan, but then they don't follow through. Well, they Nissa to, actually was brought in as a like Jamie, a yeah. one-story character who gets brought back, and they try yeah. to make. 
give Adric something to do, but they kind of drop his sort of central reason for being. And the same with Perry, they try to give her something to do, but it doesn't quite work. Whereas each Ace, time Ace, they, they actually <clears throat> instead of they coming up with the character, doing it instead of coming up with a character with all of the others, they came up with a, a location and a job. Mm. And Ace is the He's first time. computer programmer. Exactly. And America, botanist. Yeah. Australia, air hostess. Yeah. Alzaria, good at maths. Yeah. Ace is the f- only companion in the 80s where they come up with a character first, rather than the place or the job. And that's central, that storyline, that her background in Dragonfire is actually, <clears throat> I mean, it's done in a slightly ham-fisted way and it doesn't quite pan out. But they try to make something of it. They try to make something of the fact that she's, you know, the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz, trying to... But it's all part of her character. Escape her her childhood. Mm. And they do things with that in different stories. And it keeps... Yeah, exactly. It keeps coming back. It's a bit bluntly done and it's not quite successful like we were talking about when we talked about Curse of Fenric. It's a little bit sort of, you know, on the nose, but... Well, with the other characters, you'd get, with Adric, all of a sudden, his gold star for mass is a thing and he wants to get back to Alzarius, but only in the story where he's going to need mass at the end of the episode yeah. and where getting home is going to turn out not to be the option. Mm. With Turlo, mm-hmm. you actually get three episodes, three stories rather, in which Turlo gets development, but in between he just gets completely forgotten about. Mm. And it's the same with Tegan. Every now and again, you'll get the start of an episode where she's moaning on about Heathrow, but only because in that particular story, Heathrow is going to prove to have some importance, either in the visitation, because they've arrived at Heathrow, but hundreds of years too early, or in time flight or whatever. Ace is the only one who actually gets to develop as a companion, as a character, from one story into the next, and where they make stories not about her, but stories in which, in some way, her character is involved as a character rather than just turning up and being, like I said before, the Observer for three episodes and then the resolution. So Ace actually gets to have some kind of importance in the stories. Were you going to say something? No, what I was going to say was I, well, I agree with everything you both said and I love Sophie the bits. She ain't the best actress in the world. No, no, it's not that so much. No, I just don't feel... I feel, think because of how it... It's like, you know, if you put meat and potatoes in a, in a pot, it doesn't necessarily make a pie, does it? And, and and I think all the elements are there. Great actress, great ideas, great uh, scripting. But I just think the way it... It doesn't quite out, work. It doesn't quite work. You know, in which case I don't think... It, she The character Dest deserve to be that high in that top ten when you look at some of those characters and how well formed they were. No, but we're not talking about we're not necessarily talking about our opinion, but no, why no. other people's opinions have come up with yeah, this list. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's the interesting thing so that I don't think it quite worked, but basically her storyline her storyline isn't her wanting to get somewhere or be somewhere. It's almost a civilizing story. It's almost like Leela. Mm. But it didn't happen with Leela. The, the idea with Leela is it's like Pygmalion or My Fair Lady, that she's sort of civilised over her time as, with the Doctor. Mm. Whereas with Ace, they actually make entire stories out of that kind of... that kind of. It's almost like a count, series of counselling sessions 
mm. for for Ace. She's run away from home. She's violent, super violent. She's untamed. Being with the Doctor is a bit like doing national service for her. Mm. And if the series hadn't finished and we'd got the actual end of... At the moment, we've got multiple ends of, of Ace because we've got the comic strip, we've got the books, mm. and we've got a brief mention in the Sarah Jane adventures. And so we kind of don't quite know what's happened to Ace. And I think if we knew what happened to Ace and got that end of her story, maybe then it would have been a bit more a bit more coherent, a bit more final. Mm. Maybe it would have worked, possibly. Mm. But I think by, by Sophie's <laughs> own admission, though, that, that the way... The portrayal wasn't, didn't really work. No, the whole like you say, it didn't work for me. Hill. But I think if you grew up in the eighties, mm. she was the natural one to vote for. <clears throat> she was really the only Do you choice. Think it ties in with the whole McCoy Renaissance thing, though, the where everyone's looking back at the McCoy era and saying, "Oh, wasn't it brave? It was doing lots, lots of stuff that the new series are doing already, and it was a trailblazer for the new series." Yeah, it ties in with that, yeah. doesn't it? Actually, yeah. I, actually, I think it was it was brave and it was doing things that the new series doesn't do. Mm. I think it was original in itself. So I think the the McCoy innocence is well deserved. Hey, um, copyright was, Matt Barber. Yeah. Right, Ace was second on thirty point seven percent. We all know who was always going to win this. The question is by how much. Steve Herr says Liz was so natural in her portrayal and came across as feisty but vulnerable, just like Tegan. Liz once called me her friend at a convention and I have never been happier. Sarah Jane Smith, Ace was on 30.7%. Sarah Jane Smith is on 66.4%. Wow. <clears throat> that was always going to happen. Universal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a, so... So she got considerably more than twice as many votes as the nearest. You can't say it's a brilliant character because there are multiple characters. So it's basically different characters through through the years because she's played it so many times in so many different She changes forums. completely across the first three or four years that she's yeah, in it. Yeah. By the but, time you get to um the latter end of season thirteen and those first two stories of season fourteen that she's in on paper, she's barely recognisable from yeah. the girl who's in Time Warrior and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Yeah. Barely recognisable. And then the five weird. doctors, you get a kind of a weird echo, like you got... I mean, of the, everybody. The, the five doctors, story. the whole point of the five doctors is you get weird echoes of characters as they used to be. Like Carol Ann Ford is playing, is playing a child yeah. in a creepy way. And then in K9 and Company... You get another new character, and then in the the audio adventures you get another new character. But may I think this is where mm. her strength is because she's a really good. She is a really good actress. I and tell she you, to carry it all off. <clears throat> she is, I believe. So I'm going to make a bit of an assertion here. She is the companion who was around. When most people who turned into hardcore Doctor Who fans were watching as children. Hmm. I mean, over the years, people have turned into hardcore Doctor Who fans who were watching in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, watching videos in the 90s, watching hmm. the new series, whatever. But I would 
say, and this is purely from sort of circumstantial evidence, but the biggest number, the greatest concentration of sort of hardcore Doctor Who fans would seem to me to be people around about my age, which you give or take maybe five years older or maybe two or three years younger. What I'm saying is Sarah Jane Smith, uh, and this is not to, well, as we'll get to, this is not to say the actress wasn't good or the character wasn't good, but I think because there's a greater concentration around there, and that is because of the Hinchcliffe and Holmes stories, which absolutely decimated the rest of the competition on television for something that would appeal to kids. There's also a statistical thing. So people who grew up with her in the 70s and 80s, uh, in the 70s, but also people who grew up with Doctor Who in the 80s, that's when the videos started coming out. So my first video was Pyramids of Mars. So I got into Sarah Jane Smith then. People in the 90s would be doing the same thing. Then people in the 2000s would be watching her again. Because it's those stories again. Yeah. And so, so that she probably is... <clears throat> So she stretches across perfect, generations. Point, just as, as you say, people growing up with her become hardcore fans, but also people growing up after she's left become hardcore fans and then get the videos and and I and think the back it's and K Nine and Company. I mean, that's the reason she's in K Nine and Company. Why she's well, she wanted to. Uh, she wanted to. John Nathan Turner wanted her to come back and the bridge final, the yeah. uh, Tom Baker Peter Davison. Yeah, by being in a story either side of the chain. Although he asked everyone to do that as well. Well, after she said no, Jameson and. Um, So the actress is lovely, Mm. and not a. a, I wouldn't say she's a great actress. I think she's a decent actress who brings a lot of herself and a lot of charisma to the part. I don't think she's especially a good actress. I think the companion has written does all the good things that Doctor Who companions do. She gets herself into trouble without seeming stupid. Mm. She solves things, so she proves her value. She's inquisitive, so she can get stories moving, but she's intelligent, so she can solve things when they need to be solved. The character does all those things, but they're not unique to her. With So it's... It is definitely a confluence of time, place, stories, actress, the two right leading men. She gets the best remembered, best thought of two doctors. She's the only one who gets both of them. With with Tom Baker, it seems that it can go two ways. Either you get you get a companion that's constantly running around after Tom Baker, and he doesn't give the companion that energy to actually actually build on. But with Sarah, with Elizabeth Sladen, it always felt like she was never outshone by Tom Baker. She always drew energy from him to create her own personality. Well, so were... Pyramids of Mars, it was ne- we never I never thought of her as being a secondary character to Tom well, they're Baker. They're like two sons orbiting yeah, yeah. in perfect harmony. And part of that, with one part of that is Tom is how Tom Baker's feeling about the character or about the other actor. Well, he but comes in it is about, after you know, she's done so a year, so he must have been a little bit nervous at first. Yeah. But they settled down really quickly. Mm-hmm. And again, probably Ian Marta being around helps. Yeah. Because Tom and Ian 
gone famously so much mm-hmm. so that they were trying to write a Doctor Who film years later, weren't they? Yeah. So it's just, it, you know, I'm not saying that she's not the best, but I'm saying the reason why she's so well remembered, so fondly thought of, and so far out ahead in this poll, and, and still is. She's gorgeous. And she, yeah. But but it's just a confluence of absolutely everything went right, mm. and she was. She's got there. a lot going for her. Yeah, the, she yeah. she was there at, at the time when it did. Mm. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't think there's really anything else to no, say on that. No. She, I, you know, it wouldn't have been my choice to have her top, but not only did I know that she was obviously going to be top, I can't argue with the fact that she's top. No, no. She deserves to be there. Hmm. Hmm. <clears throat> Where's Chameleon? I didn't even put him on the list because he was only really in two stories. And I did say three stories or more. Okay. So I'm sorry. He, he's well out of it. Anybody else you're missing? Would you have wanted to vote for Sarah Kingdom? No. No. I didn't really think anybody would, even if I had put her on the list. So I didn't. Um, do you want to give a few mentions to people? I mean, Liz Shaw's down there. Well, I mean, yeah, them. all the companions are down there, and I could mention them all, but you know, as in ones you got. Stephen oh. Taylor ended up not too far outside the top ten, and that was nice to see because I think mm. Peter Purvis does a really good job. Yeah, in a fairly unforgiving role. Yes, there are a few stories where he shines, mm. Stephen, but I think. One I think he always Dalek, one of which is Dalek's master plan. I think he always does a good job, but I don't think the character is necessarily always terribly well written. Mm-hmm. And it's that period in the program where Ian's gone, and Stephen's just basically brought in to be an arm for William Hartnell's Doctor, right? Yeah. So uh, 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 there's not too many occasions. Massacre, obviously, is one. Mm-hmm. where Stephen actually gets to come out of his shell and be a character. But Peter Purvis gives him such um, charisma. Mm. He did quite well too. Um, Polly, Annika Wills, did fairly well. Mm. And considering no complete stories with Polly... Oh, no, The War Machine, sorry. The only complete story with Polly. In. Um, that's quite impressive, really. Um, I could go through them all, but... yeah. yeah. Let's call it a night. Okay. Um, don't know what's happening next week. Might be the three of us. Might not be. Uh, but until then, I was JR. I was Matt. I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. Whoa!